0: Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and who's your law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Indiana Lawyer Managing Editor and your host. Thanks for joining us. Happy first day of fall. Well, one day early anyway. As we head into the final stretch of the year, we're still here bringing you the news you need to know, plus interviews with Indiana legal leaders. This week's guest is Bernice Corley, Executive Director of the Indiana Public Defender Council. Let's get started. Today is Wednesday, September 21st, 2022, and these are your headlines. To start us off, here's Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe with news about Indiana's newest appellate judge.
1: Morgan Superior Judge Peter Foley has been selected by Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb to fill an open spot on the Court of Appeals of Indiana. Foley follows in the footsteps of longtime appellate judge Edward Najum Jr., who retired from the bench this summer after more than 30 years as an appellate court judge. The new Court of Appeals judge was chosen from a trio of finalists that also included Owen Circuit Judge Kelsey Hanlon and Barkersville Criminal Defense and Appellate Attorney Stacey Uliana. All three candidates were part of a total pool of nine applicants trying to fill the vacancy. Each was interviewed by the Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission on July 11th. During a September 14th announcement, Holcomb praised Foley for his calm and confident demeanor, also citing his passion for people, his integrity, and his intellect saying, quote, the Indiana appellate courts will benefit from his extensive experience, his compassion to do what's right, and his sense of justice, end quote. Chief Justice Loretta Rush also expressed her admiration of the tireless work that Foley has poured into his community over the years. Foley established the Residential Substance Abuse Program in Morgan County and serves as a member of the Morgan County Justice Reinvestment Advisory Council, which oversees the Residential Jail Substance Use Disorder Treatment Program. Additionally, he obtained funding for Morgan County's mediation project to provide mediation services for low-income parties. Foley, who has previously applied for positions on the Court of Appeals and Indiana Supreme Court, thanked his predecessor for exemplifying the characteristics of a strong judicial leader. He says he's honored to join his new colleagues on the appellate bench. Foley said, quote, the Indiana Court of Appeals has achieved a sterling reputation for the quality of its opinions, the efficiency of its work, and the leadership of its judges. I pledge my commitment to each of you to maintain that reputation and continuously strive for improvement. End quote. Foley is the fourth Court of Appeals judge Holcomb has appointed since he was elected governor in 2016. A date for Foley's roping ceremony will be determined by the Court of Appeals. Back to you, Jordan.
0: As Judge Foley settles into his new role, the Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission is beginning the process of searching for yet another new Court of Appeals judge, this one to succeed Derek Moulter, who recently joined the Indiana Supreme Court. The JNC is interviewing applicants to succeed Moulter next week, and KU will be there to cover that process. Check out our website and our Twitter feed on September 27th for all the details. Speaking of Indiana Appellate Court judges, three are up for attention this fall. And if you're a member of the Indiana State Bar Association, you can weigh in on whether they should stay on the bench. The ISBA is currently conducting its retention poll for feedback on Court of Appeals Judges Paul Mathias, Nancy Vedic, and Leanna Wiseman. Indiana's appellate judges sit for retention in the first general election that occurs at least two years after their appointment, then every 10 years after that. Judge Mathias and Judge Vedic were both appointed in 2000, so this is their third retention vote. Judge Weissman was appointed in 2020, so this is her first. The ISBA's poll, which you should be getting via email if you're a bar member, asks a simple yes or no question. Should each of these three judges be retained in the 2022 general election? The results of the poll don't hold any weight, but they're designed to help Hoosier voters make informed decisions when voting about the judiciary. The results will be shared with the public in the appellate court on October 10th. In addition to the yes or no question, the poll will also allow ISBA members to provide written feedback anonymously. That feedback is shared with the judges, but no record will be maintained. For more information about judicial retention in the three judges, visit in.gov slash courts retention. Next, some news from Indiana's three law schools. The new semester is in full swing and initial data about the new 1L classes has been released. Across the board, all three of Indiana's law schools IU Mauer, IU McKinney, and Notre Dame Law saw a slight decrease in new student enrollment in 2022, but also a slight increase in the diversity of their incoming classes. IU Mauer has 155 1Ls this year, while IU McKinney has 229, and Notre Dame Law has 166. Both IU law schools have a class that is more than half female, and in Notre Dame Law has the highest percentage of minority 1Ls at 36%. As for LSAT scores, the median at Notre Dame is 168, at IU Mauer is 164, and at IU McKinney is 154. The median GPA at IU Mauer in Notre Dame Law for the new class is 3.81, while McKinney's median 1L GPA is 3.58. We break down these numbers on our website. Check out all the details on TheIndianaLawyer.com. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita is busy working on issues related to transgender student-athletes. I've been following this pretty closely ever since the legislature enacted a bill to prevent transgender girls from playing on K-12 girls sports teams. Here's the latest. Last week, Rakita sent a letter along with 19 other state attorneys general to the U.S. Department of Education opposing proposed Title IX rule changes protecting transgender student-athletes. In the letter, Rakita argued the administration's reliance on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Bostock versus Clayton County is erroneous, and, quote, destroys the progress made to protect the rights of girls and women under Title IX over the past 50 years, end quote. The Attorney General has continually argued Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause don't protect an individual's gender identity. The letter came a week after Rakita filed a brief in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals requesting that the appellate court lift an injunction against House Enrolled Act 1041, imposed by the Indiana Southern District Court in the case of A.M. by her mother and next friend E.M., versus Indianapolis Public Schools Superintendent, Indianapolis Public Schools. In that case, a 10-year-old transgender tr- Indianapolis Public school student sued after HEA 1041 restricted her from participating on her school softball team. On July 26th, Indiana Southern District Court Judge Jane Magnus Stinson issued a preliminary injunction, allowing the student to play on the team. However, the injunction only applies to AM's case. Rakita requested that the Seventh Circuit lift the injunction after the appellate court denied his ask that it hear the case. I'll be continuing to follow this case as it progresses. Be sure to check back on TheIndianaLawyer.com for updates. To wrap up today's show, let's send it back to Katie for a preview of a high-flying story she's working on for the next issue of Indiana Lawyer.
1: 85-year-old Indianapolis attorney Dan Byron was up before the sun and settled onto an American Airlines flight with 82 other veterans to visit a site that they all have deep ties to. On September 10th, Byron, a partner at Denton's Bingham Greenbaum, had the chance to visit the country's war memorials in Washington, D.C. as a guest on the Indy Honor Flight, a nonprofit organization created to honor Indiana's World War II, Korea, and Vietnam veterans for their service and sacrifice. The longtime attorney and veteran flashed back to 56 year old memories as he flew across the country. He served in the U.S. Army on active duty from 1962 to 1966. Byron, who also served as a JAG, eventually became chief trial counsel with the 8th U.S. Army Korea from 1965 to 1966. The veterans on the flight toured their memorials and were offered front row seats to the changing of the guard at Arlington National Cemetery as well as a welcome home celebration from family and friends upon their return to Indiana. In his bowfold, Byron carries a worn piece of paper with the names of four young men from his hometown of North Vernon, whom he's never met, but knows all too well. Their names, military rank, and date of death are on the piece of paper, he says. Even in our small town, families were impacted and never saw their loved ones uh, come home. Grab a copy of our September 28th issue of the Indiana Lawyer to read more about Byron's Indiana Flight experience and how his military service shaped his legal career.
0: Thanks, Katie. Before we move on to our extended interview, I want to give a quick shout out to Katie, who is this year's winner of the Indiana Judges Association's Annual Media Award. Katie drove up to South Bend earlier this month to attend the IGA Annual Meeting, where she accepted the Media Award for her online series called Meet the Judges. If you haven't read it before, it's a series of Q&As with Indiana judges from more rural communities, which may not get as much attention as judges in more urban parts of the state. Congrats, Katie. Well-deserved. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. Head over to TheIndianaLawyer.com for the latest Indiana legal news, or pick up next week's issue of Indiana Lawyer. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear Olivia and I chat with Bernice Corley of the Indiana Public Defender Council. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Bernice Corley, Executive Director of the Indiana Public Defenders Council in studio with us today. Bernice, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
0: As Executive Director, Bernice helps manage the agency and carry out the policies established by the Board of Directors. Prior to joining the Public Defender Council, Corley served four years as General Counsel at the Indiana Department of Education and also served as Legal Counsel for both the Indiana Senate and Indiana House of Representatives. Corley has served as a a Marion County public defender, as trial counsel, as well as appellate counsel. Her career also includes clerking for Judge Carr Darden. Uh, We typically like to open with this question for our guests. Um, Why did you decide to uh, pursue the law as a profession and what drew you to public defense?
2: I grew up watching like Eye on the Prize. That was a PBS (laughs) special that covered the civil rights movement. I grew up watching Roots. I grew up... Just having the sense of or learning that lawyers really were agents for change and that things I enjoyed in my life, I had them because lawyers made it possible and and stood up and and fought those fights. So I wanted to be part of that. Um, So that was my inspiration for going and wanting to be
3: a lawyer. So you, of course, serve as the director of the council, but we also have the Public Defender Commission. So can you tell us kind of about the two entities, their unique roles and also their relationship?
2: Yeah, uh, the commission uh, has the function of providing funds to counties for public defender services. So counties that, well, just as an education point, the cost of public defense, while it is a constitutional right uh, in Indiana, it is a cost that's borne by counties. Um, So for counties that want some assistance from the state to pay for public defense services, They have the ability to become members of the Public Defender Commission, which will reimburse counties 40% of their felony um, caseloads, as well as some other costs, and 50% for any death penalty cases filed in that county. The council, on the other hand, is our first and foremost is to provide support to public defenders. Um, We do that by we have a research hotline. We We moot, we do case uh, strategizing, et cetera, on one side of the house. And then the other side of the house is policy development. Our statute does say we're supposed to uh, work for the fair administration of justice. So we advocate um, at the state, county and federal level.
0: What do you see as the biggest challenge for public defenders today?
2: Uh, So uh, there are a lot of challenges and maybe I'll start wide and, and get more specific, but Structurally, we have a lot of challenges. Um, as I said, this is a public, this is a constitutional right, but it's provided at the county level. So every county has the responsibility of deciding how to provide that service, how to fund it, uh, how to staff it. That variation from county to county, program to program, uh, creates a lot of systemic challenges. Um, if if a county chooses not to thoroughly or properly fund public defense you know, that's a challenge. So I'll start by saying the biggest challenge is just structurally the variation county to county and the inconsistency in funding really um, it is a challenge to to proper public defense structure. Additionally, I would say that because of that variation, there's no way to truly verify that the state is meeting its Requirements to provide the constitutional standard of representation to people across the state of Indiana. Uh, salary certainly is another challenge for counties that are in commission. In the Public Defender Commission, there is a requirement that there be parity between prosecution and defense. But when nobody's being paid properly, parity doesn't quite, quite right. matter, right? So prosecutors are, are not being compensated properly, nor are public defenders in those uh, commission counties, certainly. You know, another inequity is uh, benefits. Uh, public uh, prosecutors have a retirement uh, benefit that is much more advantageous than public defenders do. So we, we hope for equity in that sake. Uh, and when you think about, well, why does that matter? It's all about recruitment and, mat- and able to retain people. So when you're when people look at the ledger and go, should I be a prosecutor? Should I be a public defender? I could go either way. The ledger on the prosecutor side, compensation wise, certainly can look a lot more uh, beneficial than on the public defense side.
3: Is that unique to Indiana in terms of, you know, a county by county system or kind of these disparities between prosecutors and, and public defenders? Or is that more of a national trend? There. Thanks for that question. It, it is a national problem, um, it,
2: Again, counties, I'm sorry, states have different pro- protocols. I mean, some states do have a statewide system, Kentucky to our south has uh, generally a statewide system. However, there are carve outs for uh, like a Louisville, for example. So it's just, it's a hodgepodge across the nation. There has been a federal legislation to try to create what we have here in Indiana with respect to the Public Defender Commission, but make it national so that there's some um, federal funding to the states to say, hey, if you follow standards and um, have caseload limits and things that, that improve public defense, you'll get federal funding. Unfortunately, that legislation has not passed, but there have been efforts to try to raise the standard across our country through uh, federal legislation.
0: Hopefully, we're starting to get out of COVID. But um, you know, one question I, I was wondering as well is: Did COVID impact public defenders in any unique ways compared to maybe other areas of the law?
2: Absolutely. I mean, part of providing representation is being able to work with your client, and prepare defense. If your client is detained pre-trial because they can't pay their bail and you need to be able to go to the jail or you need to be able to talk to them, you need to be able to meet with them. And COVID was really challenging. Um, Jails in an effort to try to keep the spread down. Some jails did not allow um, attorneys to come to to their facilities, but then had to come up with other ways like Zoom or phone calls or things of that nature. So having access to clients was really challenging uh, for a while. Additionally, then you think about um, courts not having trials, um, setting trials off a while, certainly impacted people's liberty and uh, case disposition. Um, so again, coming back to a person who was perhaps not able to pay for um, their bond pre-trial, um, and as trials are delayed or put off, it was definitely a challenge to to advocate for for your client in that type of situation.
3: Right kind of combine two questions here, you know, are you seeing burnout among public defenders? And then, you know, on the flip side, how do you convince a young lawyer just coming out of law school to go into public defense?
2: Lots of burnout.
3: (laughs) Um, They've
2: been operating public defenders and really everybody in the criminal legal system has just been operating in a pressure cooker. There are these demands, you know, of, of the system moving forward, cases being processed, and so as there were delays due to COVID, so cases are not getting resolved, so case loads are getting heavier and heavier on defense, on prosecution, um, in courts. It's a lot. It's it's a lot for people, and there began to feel like there was no end in sight. Right. And so um, Indiana is facing a, a lawyer shortage. We have fewer, fewer attorneys. There are lots of opportunities that are not as stressful. So, yes, I've definitely talked with with defenders who have had it and they're either have left or very much contemplating leaving, though they love their work, just feeling like they they can't continue at the pace that they're demanded to keep up with. Um, in terms of drawing new attorneys, you know, one thing remains true, and that is if someone graduates from law school and they really want to have trial experience, they really want to have jury experiences, they really want to master the rules of evidence or, or things of that nature, there it just is no better place to do that than than criminal law and particularly public defense. So I think attracting a person who has that interest. Additionally, if you have a person who, let's say they're not interested in the courtroom, but they're very interested in appeals and they like to write and they like to advocate in that manner, lots of opportunity there and lots of flexibility in that opportunity. So I think public defense has a lot to offer a young attorney and a great way to sort of get a person on their feet and in their career, making them quite dynamic offering them great opportunities, and then whatever they may choose to do next, they certainly are not harmed by having had trial and jury experience or appellate experience.
0: There's a lot of work going on uh, statewide regarding juvenile justice reform. Um, What role is the Public Defender Council playing in those efforts?
2: We are very much a driver. So we have been really fortunate. Uh, The council received a federal grant some years back really focus on juvenile delinquency cases. Um, And that work went on for about five years. And what that looked like was uh, training uh, public defenders. So just again, as an education point, most people in Indiana who do public defense work are not full-time public defenders. Most of them are private attorneys who have their own firm. They have their own private work they do, but they take on a contract uh, in a county to do a certain case type or a certain type of work. Public defense would shut down if any of those attorneys stopped doing their work. Many of them, they're the only ones providing that work in their county. So thank goodness for them. But because they're not doing that work full time, it's really important that you know, they have training opportunities and ways to be sure that they're advocating the best they can for their client. So in terms of the council's role, through that federal grant we received, we provided training. We provide, again, case strategizing. We um, help with mooting when we've had uh, certain uh, legal issues mm-hmm. around juvenile delinquency that were queued up for appeal. We work with those attorneys. Um, additionally, we met with uh, children in DOC who through their delinquency case ended up in DOC. When we first started this work, there were a number of kids who ended up in DC and hadn't, a DOC, I'm sorry, and had not been represented by an attorney. But through those relationships, we were able, once we discovered that, to refer those kids to appellate representation, and we were able to get a number of them adjusted to a less um, serious placement. And so that work, when we ran out of our federal grant, thank God for Chief Justice Rush, who uh, helped us with uh, a bridge grant uh, to get us until we were able to get state funding to keep doing this work. And so we do it through uh, Joel Winnicke. he's an expert in our office. And so now we are just continually advocating for ways for Indiana to improve uh, the juvenile delinqu- delinquency system um, and improve outcomes for youth. And so we, we are at the table and we are helping to drive that conversation and very much partners in that reform.
3: So the big topic this summer, of course, has been the new abortion legislation. And, you know, it's been passed and assuming there's no injunction, it'll be in effect by the time this episode airs. And I know there's been a lot of question about that language of are there criminal penalties? I think you spoke with Marilyn about this. Have you had the council any time, you know, to study that and try to get some answers about what it means in practice for women or doctors? So we definitely have, we tracked that legislation yeah. from the beginning because we were very concerned. Um, our
2: board has a standing policy that we do not um, support new crimes. Sure. Um, we have plenty. <laughs> we have plenty of tools to for the state to address any necessary uh, bad behavior. So we were monitoring the legislation mm-hmm. for any new crimes and was prepared to 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 challenge those. With respect to the bill as it has passed, the language that you're referring to is, I believe, the defense language mm-hmm. um, with respect to um, any prospective mo- uh, mothers as well as doctors. In terms of how it's written, from our perspective, um, it, it's language that's available if a person's charged. Mm-hmm. You know, so for us, yeah. it feels clear in the sense that you can't access a defense unless you're charged. Sure. um so it it's certainly my hope. That that defense language is sort of a while Indiana doesn't have legislative intent, sort of evidence of the legislative intent that that prospective mothers not be
3: charged. Sure.
2: Because they have this pretty Mm. solid defense. That makes sense. But it doesn't it doesn't act as a total bar. So we're just keeping our members when I say members, public people who do public defense work in Indiana aware um, of this language and. We're here to support them if any charges are filed against against a a, a prospective mother or a woman who uh, terminated her pregnancy.
0: Uh, Does IPDC have any uh, events coming up? Are there any projects you're looking forward to seeing grow?
2: There is so much. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, There's so many good things that are occurring. Again, I could take a while on that, but um, I'll try to just focus on a couple of things. Um, the council is a partner and a pilot uh, that is beginning in Marion County. The pilot is to um, try out a holistic public defense model.
3: Interesting. Oh, I'm so excited about <laughs> it. Um,
2: and I'm so appreciative that it was funded. So the work is is sort of the following. So in a standard public defense system, if you have a client that is found guilty, your work pretty much ends at the guilty finding Um, Unless, let's say, your client is put on probation and they have a probation violation, then they're entitled to representation on that violation. But really, your work ends at the end of a guilty sentence. But the client's entanglement with, with legal systems does not end at that point. So if you have a client that's been found guilty and let's say he or she has a child support obligation, uh, let's say he or she has a lease, you know, <laughs> um, a whole host of things that if they're not able to tend to them because they're going to be incarcerated in, in jail or DOC for a period of time will really cause them to sort of reel when they're released. Yeah. Right. So holistic public defense is a model that sort of moves the the line of where representation ends to follow that person further even during their incarceration and after their release, to help them navigate and resolve other legal entanglements, access the social services that they might need. Um, And so this pilot uh, was just funded by DMHA. We're really excited about that and and appreciative um, to the Holcomb administration for that. And we'll see where it goes. But uh, it was just funded this summer. Um, and it should be up and running. So it's here in Marion County. It will focus on low level felons who have been sentenced to DOC who will get out um, with three years or less of okay. a sentence and working with them to be sure that when they are released, they are they have the help they need to get on their feet, whether it's license restoration, whether it's a parent, a mother who's released from jail, who has a guardianship or, or an adoption uh, matter helping restore families. So we're really excited about that. And our hope is, is that if the program is successful, people are less likely to cycle, continue cycling through the legal uh, criminal legal system. So um, so I'll stop there. That's, that's <laughs> our major excitement. Well, and one more. Um, <laughs> the work of um, House Enrolled Act 1359, um, that is... Uh, charged with creating a commission to look at um, juvenile delinquency reforms. Really excited about that. That body is up and running. Joel Winnike is the council's representative on that. And they're looking at everything. You know, how do do we help children uh, transitioning from DOC back to their communities, back to their home? How are we supporting them? Um, A whole host of issues. So I'm really excited about
3: the work uh, there as well. All right. To wrap us up, anything else you think lawyers should know about the Public Defender Council? Well, you know, we're doing the
2: best we can to make sure that attorneys who are doing this work are supported, um, that any challenges our people are having in their counties while they do this work, um, that they know we're here to help. And so I just want lawyers who do this work um, to know that we're here and we're happy to help. And whether that's on policy issues that they're having um, in their local communities, on a case, whatever, the the Public Defender Council, we're here to help them.
0: That'll wrap up this week's episode. Thanks again to our guest, Indiana Public Defender Council Executive Director Bernice Corley, for joining us today. To listen to previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast, be sure to visit theindianalawyer.com or your favorite streaming service.